and the and the teaching us about Jesus Christ being the precious cornerstone. And so this morning we're going to have basically an introduction to the passage. We're going to read the passage and then several things that I want us to take a look at. We won't really get into the to the uh, exegeting the scripture until uh, next Sunday. Uh, but we're looking at honoring the cornerstone and his gospel. Now that's the verses 4 through verse 12, which we'll read. We'll pick up then when we finish there from verse 13 through verse 7 of chapter 3, holding to authority. And then there's a, a, lot, a lot of similarities between um, uh, Romans chapter 13 and uh, the latter part of chapter 2 and first part of chapter 3 in First Peter. So we'll spend some time there looking at submitting to the government for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we covered this in Romans as well. Submitting to the suffering as the Lord Jesus Christ and then submitting in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we began, we began to look at honoring the cornerstone and begin in verse 4, reading through verse 12, we have these words. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Honoring the cornerstone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, we need you this morning, and in ways that we cannot even fathom. And so we pray that, and we ask for your forgiveness where we are an ignorant people. We pray by the Spirit of God you would teach us from your word this morning. We pray that you would, uh, Father, from the word, have us focus on the God-man Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that you would make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So as we, as we move into this passage, I want uh, it, 
<clears throat> remember now, no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscript. So there were no separations. There were no chapters, no verses. And so this passage or this epistle rather would have been read to churches uh, <clears throat> in its entirety. So the last few weeks, we've taken a look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. I want to read those again because there is a, uh, there's a bridge that runs from the first three verses over to, chapter, uh, over to verse 4. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Now, Peter will pick up again on this in, in uh, verses 11 and 12. We never get away from the fact that we're sinners Save sinners though some of us may be, we still sin, and we allow and we give in to the flesh. Paul wrote about this to the church at Rome. Peter is writing it here to a group that is scattered abroad. So we're going to see that all the way through First and Second Peter. And then he says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We're going to start to look at Christ being the cornerstone. And the way we know that Christ is the cornerstone, we'll explain that more fully next Sunday morning, but the way we know that is because of what the Word says. We don't know that without the written Word of God. This past week or so, a couple of weeks ago, I received uh, via email um, a, uh, a survey called the State of Theology in America um, from Ligonier Ministries. This uh, was one of the ministries of Dr. R.C. Sproul, who passed away five or six years ago now. It continues under the auspices of a number of uh, godly men. And so I wanted to kind of educate you this morning about some key findings. There were uh, almost 40 different questions that were asked, and obviously we're not going to go through 40 of them. But I think I've got five or six here that I think tell us the, the tale of what is happening to the church. We look at uh, our culture, <clears throat> and we surmise that there is something seriously wrong with our culture. And this really doesn't matter. Your politics really don't, uh, don't take this into consideration. There were people that are on the right, people on the left, people in the middle that would say something is seriously wrong with our culture. And so these key findings will help us to focus on why we are to desire the pure milk and why we are to learn from the cornerstone. First question, the question was asked, does God change? And so the general population, 51% said, yes, God does change. The surprising thing is uh, among evangelicals. So the, so the survey was um, segregated into the general population, the overall population, as yeah, surveys do, and then focused on a specific population, which would be evangelicals. We would probably consider ourselves in that group, evangelicals, individuals that uh, believe the Bible attests to the fact that we must be born again, and that uh, being born again, we are to live as children of God in this wayward world. 
So surprisingly, and all of these things that I had this morning are surprising, over 50% of the general population said, yes, God does change, but 48%, almost half, of those that profess Christ as Savior say, yeah, he, he changes. Well, does he? The Bible affirms the truth that the triune God is both omniscient, meaning that he knows all things, and he is immutable, meaning that he cannot and does not change. Now, when a statement is made that God cannot do something, it has to do with his character. God is not a libertarian. His character is such that he is not infected with the opportunity to change. Understand that. Scripture, and I'm not going to look at these this morning. You can jot these down, Isaiah 46. I am the Lord and I change not. Malachi 3.6, a similar statement that is made. James 1.17 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness nor change. And 1 John 3.20 also speaks of this. Despite this truth, the majority of adults in believing, uh, believe that God both learns and adapts to different circumstances. And almost one half of evangelicals said, yeah, he does change. So the question I have for you this morning, and some of you may think that, but the question I have for you this morning, does that align with Scripture? Secondly, are we born innocent? A couple of ladies that are expecting, and by the way, having... Infants, having young babes, having children in a church is good for a church. All God's people said? Amen. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. It's good for a church. It was just a few months ago that Kitty said to me, we don't have any more babies in the nursery. And I said, all you got to do is wait. <laughs> having children is a good thing. And it's, it is a, it disturbs me that Christian believers, husbands and wives that have the capability of having children, do not choose to have children. By the way, that's sin. So, are we born innocent? The general population, 70%, says yes. Evangelicals. 65% say yes. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible teaches the concept of original sin. We, we preached through this when we were going through Romans. And it's not only unique to Romans. It's found in Ephesians. Peter's going to introduce it also. It is a Bible concept. And this means... That since the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve, every human being inherits a sin nature from their conception. Psalm 51.5, Behold, 
in iniquity I was conceived. David says, and then Romans 5.12 also alludes to this fact that we were born sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we're sinners. And that's an infection that all of us have. It's an infection that cannot be cured without the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to us. Can't be cured without Jesus Christ. Most, most adults believe that people are born innocent. Think of Adam and Eve and were innocent. They were not. They were given a law. They knew and understood the extent of the law. So when a law is present, there's no innocence. And most adults believe that humans are born innocent, and because we live in a humanistic society where philosophies and worldviews teach self-determination, and the view of humankind is basically good, I then would challenge you just look at the world. I think that, uh, what's the phrase, Mike? Anyone with any common sense would figure that out. Anyone with any common sense should be able to figure that one out. Children are not born innocent. They're born with a sin nature, and as parents and grandparents, we know that. This truth is foundational for the accurate understanding of the gospel. You see, without the understanding that we are born in sin and need to be redeemed from sin, there's no need for a Savior. Jesus is not a therapist. He is not a philosopher. He is a Savior. And because we're born in sin, we have an absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. Next slide, if you would, brother. Does church membership matter? And this comes back to that self-determination. The overarching proponent of philosophy today in the West is individualism. And it has infiltrated the church. Well, the general population said, uh, 56% said, no, it doesn't matter. But surprisingly, the evangelicals said, yeah, 68, almost 70% said, yes, it does matter. And that's good. For much of American history, it ought to be 100%, but be that as it may. For much of American history, the influence of Christianity resulted in a high rate of church attendance and membership. Yet increasing secularization in America has led to more Americans identifying as non-religious. In addition, the entrenched cultural value of individualism means most Americans deem church membership as optional for Christians. Well, it's, I don't see it that way. Well, the New Testament teaches that those who claim to follow Christ will also become part and parcel of a body of believers. And it, there's a number of passages, and this is just a few of them. 
I would ask you this question. You've heard me ask it time and time again. The question is, since two-thirds of the New Testament was written to churches, do you think maybe churches matter? Yeah. It is surprising that only 68%, and that's better than all of the others, and we'll see in a couple of more, view church membership as obligatory. And this may indicate the influence of individualistic, here we come again, worldviews. Challenges posed by COVID-19, we've seen over the past two years or so, and an ever-increasing access to viewing via the internet, which is a good thing for people that can't be in God's house. It is never, was never intended, and we, we uh, publish the messages here, and as I mentioned to you several times, uh, the downloads for the messages now exceed 41,000 downloads. And that's across our nation and around the world. Which tells us that not everybody that listens or watches or downloads can be here. So that's the extent of the gospel. That's a good thing. But for those that have the capability of being in God's house locally, part and parcel of the Flat Creek family, you should be here. And that's not antiquated thinking. That's Bible thinking. Next slide, if you would. So there were a couple of questions or two or three questions that I have here that were asked to evangelicals only. They didn't ask them to the general population. And first one that I have for your viewing pleasure this morning was, was the Bible divinely inspired and literally true? Or, like all sacred writings, it contains myths which are not literally true. And the surprising thing is that 53% of people that say they are born again said, yes, the Bible does contain myths that are not literally true. Hmm. Adults increasingly reject the divine author of the Bible. These things, Paul said, were written for our admonition. And we'll look at that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we move through 1 Peter chapter 2. And he said, they were written for our admonition upon whom the foundation of the church was built. And so we demote the Bible to the same category as other religious writings or alleged sacred text. And we preached somewhat about that last Sunday morning. A view of the Bible this way makes it easy for individuals to accept biblical teaching that resonate with them while simultaneously rejecting any biblical teaching that is out of step with our own personal views or broader cultural values. And we see that all through our country today. I ran into a, uh, a man that I had not seen in over 20 years. I used to be a peer of mine, work with him, uh, last night. And 
um, he and I were talking. He is, uh, uh, he is a pastor of a, a small Methodist church in Bedford County. I didn't know that, so he and I talked a little bit about uh, the culture at large. And so he, he said, you know, Ernie, he said, uh, our church has left the United Methodist Fellowship. And I said, well, you, you probably didn't have to leave. They probably walked away from you. And, of course, the main issue, and some of you may know this, but the main issue, of course, is alternate lifestyles, alternative lifestyles, uh, not only homosexuality, but the transgender issue and all the other uh, rigmarole that uh, we're going through today. And so he and I talked for a bit, and I reminded him Actually, he was, he was talking. He said, I, I went to a meeting to inform the Methodist Presbytery that we were uh, disassociating with the United Methodist Movement. And he said, one of the men that chaired this particular meeting, when I told them why, that the viewpoint now of many of the United Methodists, not all, but many of the United Methodists, is that these alternative lifestyles are, yeah, they're centers, but they're, you know, centers that need to be reached, and they do. And then the chair of the meeting went on to say, well, this is an old person issue. And so this man that I was talking to is about my age, and of course he's got white hair as well, and I said, well, <laughs> you know, it's not only an old person issue, it's an old issue. It's as old as the Bible. Comes back to this rejecting biblical teaching that is out of step with their personal views or the broader cultural values. The Bible is a unified message from the one true God. It's to be embraced in all of its fullness as God's perfect revelation to mankind. Few scriptures that are here. We must conform to Scripture. And that means when it speaks to us in areas that convict us, that means the Spirit of God is doing His job. That's what it means. We must conform our lives to Scripture rather than twist Scripture to suit our lives. And believe me, that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing for me. And we'll see that later on as we bring this to a close this morning. Secondly, does God accept other faiths as worship? 56% of evangelicals, those that profess Jesus as Savior, say, yeah, it's okay. Key to Orthodox Christianity is Jesus' own assertion that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. And there are numerous other scriptures that go that, uh, that bolster this it's not an opinion, it's fact. The 2022 survey revealed an increasingly unbiblical belief among evangelicals that God is pleased by worship from those outside the Christian faith. You know what I would say? I would say the majority of evangelicals do not know the fundamentals of their faith or other faiths. 
and unfortunately, we like to relish our ignorance. Next slide, if you would. Questions, again, to evangelicals only. Christ was a great teacher, but not God. Well, 43%, the sad thing is that 43% said, yeah, he's a great teacher, but not God. Now, how are you born again, accepting Christ as a teacher only, but not God? You're not. You're not. You're not a believer. In 2020, 66% strongly disagreed with this statement. And in the last two years, a significant increase in evangelicals deny the divinity of Christ. These are people that say they're born again. And that's an increase of 25% in just the past two years. And that's interesting because that occurred when COVID uh, over the the past two years with COVID. And it's also interesting that in many cases, churches were shut down and were fearful of coming back together or continuing to be fearful of preaching the Word of God. You think the devil distracts in ways that are beyond our mental capability to comprehend? Absolutely. And such a belief is contrary to Scripture, affirms from the beginning to the end that Jesus is indeed God, and this is just a few of these passages of Scripture. Now, as we move into verse 4, I want you to understand, we don't have a mission statement here. I had enough of mission statements when I worked. The mission statement of Flat Creek is, Go ye therefore into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of those that believe, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's called the Great Commission. Flat Creek is intentionally focused, intentionally focused on teaching the truth, which begins with the indicatives of the doctrines. We've talked about that quite often. It's instruction line with Pauline thinking and also with Peter's thinking here in 1 Peter. Our intent is purposeful. We are committed to making disciples, not only converts. These questions to evangelicals, some churches or whatever ministry was involved, we're intent on making just converts. We're intent on making disciples, not just converts. And that's what Jesus said. We want disciples that understand the fundamental truths and can use them as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. This is a great passage of Scripture to grow in the love of the brethren and lost sinners. That's the intent. That's what, by God's grace, we've attempted to do for almost 28 years here from the pulpit and from teaching, what Brother Vance is doing, what our teachers are doing in Sunday school, what our ladies are doing. That is our intent. 
We're going to have a wonderful time. You ladies will have a wonderful time this afternoon in the shower for Stacy. But that's not the intent of the church. We'll have a wonderful time next Sunday afternoon with the picnic, but that's not the intent of the church. That's part of fellowship of the church. But the shower, no picnic, will save you. The cornerstone saves us. Let's not lose sight of the great truths that men and women have died for, millions of men and women have died for through the ages in order that you and I might sit in the comfort of the Flat Creek Sanctuary with AC running or heat running or whatever and listen to the Word of God. God, help us to be faithful to His Word. Now, start to look at the passage of Scripture here. That brings us to where we are. Next slide, if you would, brother. So, we spent a great deal of time looking at verses 22 through verse 3. And there's some summaries here that I want to make before we move into the passage in verse 4, which is, which is um, all the, the work that Peter has for us here in verses 4 through 12 is... Um, increasingly important to our understanding of Jesus as the founder, as the foundation of our faith. Not the founder, the foundation of our faith. Muhammad was the founder of Islam. Jesus is not the founder of Christianity. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. Without him, there is no Christian faith. And so when you say that Jesus is not God, there's a problem. You're not Christian. So when we look at verses 22 through verse 3, we finished last Sunday morning talking about desiring the milk of the word. There are five principles here that Peter is giving to us to instruct us about how we grow in the word of God. And let's grasp those before we start to move into verse 4. The first one, the gospel appeal and the exhortations that we see in the Scripture, not only 1 Peter but other places as well, that are grounded in the proclamation. And proclamation, notice what he says, the latter part of verse 25. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Okay, was proclaimed to you, a verbal proclamation of the truth. This enforces the instruction of the Word of God. Our growth, the Bible refers to it as sanctification. This is spiritual growth, our walk. We talked about it a great deal in looking at uh, verses uh, 13 and those following and uh, focused on holiness. Our growth is always by faith. Now, we've read verses 4 through 10 here, or 4 through 12. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm 
Peter's writing to a group of pilgrims. In fact, that'll come out in, in these, in these in, uh, I think, the five points here. To those that are scattered abroad, sojourners, people that were displaced by the Roman persecution. By the way, the Romans considered Christian, Christians to be atheists. I think you've heard me talk about that many, many times. They didn't follow the Roman pantheon, so they were atheists. Anyone that didn't follow the Roman pantheon became atheist. <clears throat> Look at what Paul says here in verses 1 through 7. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. Now, he, now Peter's going to talk about a royal priesthood. So these kind of go back and, back and forth with one another. We have a building from God. Cornerstone. We have a building from God. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Peter's going to talk about that in the passage that we've read. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tent. For we who are in this tent, in this body, in the sarks, in the flesh. We groan. We're burdened. And if I were to take a survey this morning, every single one of you, pastor included, you're burdened about something. Because the flesh is weighted down. And more often than not, it's weighted down with our sin. Not because we want to be unclothed, Paul said, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as his guarantee. The Spirit of God works in our hearts and souls, and that is the, the book of Ephesians, old King James says, the earnest of the Spirit. That's the stamp of knowing who we are in Christ Jesus. So we're always confident. One thing for certain, neither Peter nor Paul Lacked for confidence. Confidence in their faith. We are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. America has become, or the West has become, a series of nations that want to see everything. They want to see signs. It's the very same thing that the Pharisees told Jesus. Show us a sign. Paul says, no, you don't, you're not going to get a sign. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. Now, what's Paul talking about? Well, primarily, if we move through this passage and we're not going to We'll stop right there this morning. But primarily he is reemphasizing yet again the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Peter has talked about this back in 1 Peter chapter 1. So our hope in the gospel we mentioned to you is in the resurrection. Holiness in the gospel comes because we are looking forward to Jesus coming and being resurrected in this life. Second thing. The word of the Lord always presents the Lord of the word. We closed with that last Sunday morning. 
We don't come to the word of the Lord without coming to the Lord of the word. When we come to the word, we come to the Lord. And when we come to the Lord, he's pleased because we've come to him through his agency. The word of God cannot be detached from the Lord Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees were masters at doing this. They clung to the scriptures, Old Testament law, but they rejected the Savior. We can't do that. He's the living word. We cannot profess obedience to him and reject his word. Peter declares that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. We've looked at that passage of Scripture quite often where it says we're born again by the seed of the word of God, which is living as well as enduring. Ephesians 4 talks about this as well. Next slide, if you would. How does, the, how does growth take place? Number three, the goal of our growth is salvation and not a one-time event where we are born again. That's not the goal of growth. The goal of our growth is salvation. The full salvation that the gospel proclaims for which we are kept and in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're born again. That is an event that takes place in our life, but that's not the only reason we're saved. There is hope in the gospel. But the gospel also produces holiness, purity. The word of God purifies our faith. Peter writes about this in verses 7 through 9. He says that the genuineness of your faith, how do you know it's real? The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Regardless of what God may have put us through or allowed us to be tested in ways that and sometimes are uh, excruciating. This is a trying to prepare us for what is to come. Heaven would not be heaven if it's like earth. And somehow we have morphed heaven into being like the earth. We won't we want all of, the, uh, all of the privileges of living on earth. It may be an opportunity to, to see the Lord once in a while. Help us through that. We love Christ whom we've not seen. Though we've not seen him, we believe in him. You rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, receiving the, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are saved presently but we're going to be taken home to be with him. That is the ultimate revelation of salvation. Going home to be with him. The word of God purifies our faith. It intensifies our love. We see that in verse 22. And we taste of his grace 
as we are tested. Do these things happen in your life? Your life purified, does it intensify your love for the brethren? And we taste of the grace as we are tested. Peter defines the gospel of Jesus Christ, number four, as the incorruptible seed, which gives us new birth, grows us up in the desire for pure milk of the word. How do we know we grow by the word of God? Because the incorruptible seed borns us again, prepares us for uh, for heaven and seeing our Savior Jesus Christ, and then we desire continually the Word of God so that we may grow in it. And fifthly, this desire is the tasting of God's sweet Word. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel is told, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I will give you and fill your stomach with it. Ezekiel said, I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Believers find the Lord in the word of his gospel. Or better, he finds us by his living word. These things move in our hearts and our lives to change us. One more point, and with this I'll close. Next slide. So this is where we will begin next Sunday morning. If you were asked the question, how do you, how do you or how would you define yourself? When I was employed, we had we had more consultants that would come in and tell us how to do our job than actually literal people that did the work. So one of the things that they taught you, well, you need to have an elevator speech. Have you ever you heard of that, the elevator speech where you get, have a brief synopsis of who you are so that if you get on the elevator and somebody asks you, well, Ernie, what do you do? You're able to bore them with the details of what you do. The elevator speech. Okay. We live in the Occidental world, in the Western world. We're not Oriental. We're Occident. We're West. Founded primarily by the Christian faith. We are a culture of self-definition. And when asked the question, how do you define yourself? One of the first things we start with, well, I am, and then you fill in the blank. This is my education, this is my background, this is what I do, this is where I go, this is who I know. And so we are, we are limitless in telling other people who we are. But interestingly enough, if you go to other cultures, they don't start with I am. And the Hebrews didn't start with I am. In fact, the only person that you find in Scripture, generally, that starts with the phrase I am, is Yahweh, is the Lord. I am. <coughs> you don't know who you are until you know who I am. Other cultures begin with we. And they define their family, they define their skills, <coughs> they define their craft, they define their place in the culture. We, Westerners, 
we major on who we are. Peter, in this passage, is reminding the pilgrims scattered abroad they are not individuals. They are a community of believers that need to be strengthened by the cornerstone. And so Peter moves from the character of Christ to our identity as believers. Our identity begins with these questions. Who is my God? Whom do I trust? What is my community? And these questions, whose am I, is more important than who am I? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the word. We spent a great deal of time in an introduction to prepare us to receive the truth of Christ being the cornerstone of this church. All Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches have Christ as the head of the church. None of us have tenure. We are all at the mercy of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you this morning that through your mercy, we have tasted of the good grace of God. I do pray, Father, that in these closing minutes, if there's one here this morning that does not know your Savior, that you may move by the Spirit through the Word to exalt Jesus Christ so that they understand that the God-man, the incarnate one, the one that is God, who died for their sins,